0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, everyone. Uh, This is going to be the last week of our hiatus, but I still didn't want to put out no content, uh, seeing as we've kept a pretty good streak with that for the most part. Uh, I'm going to read a few pieces that I wrote a couple years ago about uh, Nazis, the media, and the arts. Uh, This first piece is called The Power of the Medium. The rise of Nazi power in the 1930s saw the use and application of the recent technological innovation of film among its many tactics in assuming control over the country. It is without a doubt that the most infamous example of the cinematic avocation of this very process was captured by Leni Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will in 1933, a documentary displaying Adolf Hitler's speeches in Nuremberg. While Riefenstahl herself later claimed that she was filming a documentary and not conveying any political message with them... If we are to assume a McLuhan perspective on the film, then it is without a doubt that Riefenstahl's inventive and specific techniques set a political narrative that contributed to the rise of Nazi power through the regime leader Adolf Hitler. Any film theorist, as well as any expert on communication or language, will emphasize the importance of nonverbal communication, or in layman's terms, what's not being said says an awful lot. Riefenstahl's films are no exception. It is not enough to have captured Adolf Hitler's speeches to Nuremberg, something that alone could... Probably could not be misconstrued as objective in and of itself, but it's the methods and techniques that were used in the process that definitively communicate otherwise. Susan Sontag describes Triumph of the Will as the most successful, most purely propagandistic film ever made, whose very conception negates the possibility of the filmmakers having an aesthetic or visual conception independent of propaganda. While her refuted resistance to Goebbels trying to dictate the visual representation of the film may show that she wasn't a drone completely following orders, it would be irresponsible to suggest that her visuals aren't aware of these techniques that made a propaganda film so successful. Nazi Germany's use of propaganda shows heavy influence from the era of Soviet montage, despite Goebbels' best effort to distance themselves from the Bolsheviks. Riefenstahl was given resources directly from the German government and allowed the budget that enabled the creation of dozens of cinematic inventions that are still used today. To see them objectively and deny their influence is irresponsible. As difficult as it is to associate with someone capturing the image of Adolf Hitler in such a light, she, Riefenstahl, had an unlimited budget, a crew of 120, and a huge number of cameras from Sontag 1975, The entire Nuremberg rally was created with the idea of making it a film in mind. Otherwise, the low angle shots from the front of Hitler's podiums would have been impossible. A rut had to be dug in front of the stage to provide the space for the camera and its movements from such angles. And without the cooperation of the Nazi government in planning and aiding Riefenstahl's effort... They likely wouldn't. Ha- they, they they likely would have been for naught. Sometimes the lack of interference is as powerful as visible influence. Quote: She was able to set up special camera positions, which included a camera lift on an iron flag mast in the stadium. Allen Sennett details. There was there was also to be an opportunity to restage shots at a later date. As with influence of an unlimited budget and a lack of interference, not everything in regard to the visual medium is direct and blatant. The Soviets throughout the 1920s made use of the cinema eye and advocated for the training of direct responses to the human body. Or, put another way, certain imagery and information could draw programmed behavior and thought patterns that were as instinctive that were instinctive as opposed to learned. Riefenstahl's films uses several of these as well, especially in the form of generating the unspoken, comparative, and contrasting natures of the figures in the film. Quote, Many devices are employed for the sole purpose of eliciting from an audience certain specific responses, explains Siegfried Krakauer in From Caligari to Hitler. In this film, marching infantry columns betoken an advance, In it, the ideal type of German soldier emerges time and time again in close-up, a soft face that involuntarily betrays the close relationship of soul and blood, sentimentality, and sadism. Perhaps another more notorious example sees Hitler flying into Nuremberg itself. To the modern eyes of the viewer, this would not strike the mind as unusual, but both cinema and flight were new innovations in the early 1930s. The very idea of filming of landing plane was unheard of, and the image of Hitler descending from the clouds allowed him to assume a godlike status over the rest of his citizens. Quote, national socialism would, of course, have been unthinkable without all the genres, movements, and images from which it borrowed, explains Linda Schulte Sassi. "...it builds on a foundation of modernism and uses nostalgia to colonize the fantasy life of its constituency." The blend of new technology and nostalgic nostalgic appeal for the homeland come together in these brilliantly captured visual technological feats, and thus were so effective for, among other reasons, Riefenstahl's application and comprehension of the power of framing. To show Hitler is one thing, but to frame him as a god on earth could not have been conveyed by accident. This power and the visibility reinforcing such did not only involve the placement of Adolf Hitler. Krakauer's central point in from Calgary to Hitler argues for the idea of the mass ornament which, in which a group of people move as one, like a machine. The, the military demonstrations taking place before Hitler show not, show not only complete and unquestioned solidarity, but from the high-perched perspective of Hitler. He looks down upon them from great height, as he would have when descending from the clouds into Nuremberg earlier in the film, quote, there is a constant panning, traveling, tilting up and down so that the spectators not only see passing a feverish world but feel themselves uprooted in it, unquote. Krakauer elaborates, mass ornaments appeared to Hitler and his staff who must have appreciated them as configurations and symbolizing the readiness of the masses to be shaped and used at will by their leaders, unquote. Loyalty can be shown in the movement of a group of people unified as one, like the machine-like qualities theorized by Soviet montage filmmakers a decade earlier. The mass ornament takes this idea one step further. Not only are the natural and subconscious reactions captured and co-opted with a specific purpose in mind, the idea of unity with the Führer for home and country is transposed with the emotional appeal and manipulation. This could not be anything but intentional on the part of Leni Riefenstahl. Consider also the power of the symbol. Not only is the swastika unmistakably tied to Nazi power, but Hitler himself as well. In triumph of the will, the swastikas and the huge flags displaying them prominently were featured in nearly every shot. In the same way that symbolism can be used to convey a message, the symbol itself being so prominent associates itself with the person being featured. In this case, Adolf Hitler and the swastika become bound with Germany, victory, success, and the cause. To elaborate further, the actions that transpire around the Führer. In addition to the mass ornament sequences and placement of the gaze of Hitler, other space in the film is filled with traditional German values meant to restore a feeling of calmness, nostalgia, and aspiration. Women are shown as homemakers and the mothers of the children. Little boys play at war, for they they one day too will lead Germany to great success and carry on its power for generations. While this reinforcement can be jarring to modern eyes in some capacity, at the time it showed a unified traditional German population in complete collusion with its leader, the symbol of its leader, and the army that served under them. Taking into account the previous decade of uncertainty and economic strife in Germany, the transformative nature of seeing someone appearing to have Germany's best interests at heart was even more powerful considering the circumstances. This created a reality in Germany that had been long suffering in depression and uncertainty from the crushing loss of the First World War. A rise to power again for Germany not only meant change in guard with... Not, not only meant the changing guard would bring about the end of the suffering, but the rise of those who cooperated with the one taking place with Adolf Hitler himself. One country, one people, one leader. The individual no longer mattered, quote, in such scenes, the Nazi ruler's contempt for the individual becomes apparent, unquote. That's Krakauer 2004. An individual can think independently, perhaps against the will of the improvement and success of the fatherland, and is therefore abhorred against the image of the mass ornament showing showing the unity of Germany under Adolf Hitler. The Führer is the only individual, a father and a god to all of his citizens, rescuing them from the depths of despair and making Germany great again comparison intentional can only function with the questioning and criticism of its leader rendered equivalent with treason and an anti-german sentiment to control the media is to control reality itself quote this film represents an inextricable mixture of a show simulating german reality and of german reality maneuvered into a show Crack 2004. When reality becomes a show, there's a disconnect between that reality and the negative effects such as suffering, depression, violence, and death. A god cannot die, therefore Germany will not die under the rule of Adolf Hitler. Creating that cognitive dissonance with its citizens eliminates the fear of death in multiple ways. First, under the protection of a god, many religions teach that one will live forever. The savior of Germany being Adolf Hitler, he has pulled Germany from the depths from which they escaped, never to return. Second, an economic depression, the likes of which Germany, Germany suffered, was inescapably stricken and connected with death. So to rise like the phoenix from the ashes, Germany does not die again with Hitler, but continues to rise and live on as the suffering has ended. And now, the true potential and greatness of Germany can be unlocked under the guidance and love of its father, its God, its Führer. To blend what is a show with reality does not create the ability of a citizenry to discern the difference. When the entire media is controlled and specifically designed against individualism and questioning of the government, and the government controls the media, what the government says is reality. Riefenstahl visually connects these ideas with the thread of presentation and visual establishment throughout. Germany becomes the blend of the modern power and nostalgic morality to create its own contemporary reality. Quote, all construct eth- aestheticized images of Germany's cultural to create a sense of collective identity in the, pre- in the present, to inspire the spectator to celebrate the consciousness of being German—a consciousness that can only a consciousness that can be carried beyond the theater. sass nineteen ninety one, unquote. Controlling history throughout the pre- through the present and consolidating the two creates a uniform reality specifically dictated and presented by the government for its citizens, in which all of the information is communicated with the intention of subjugating its citizens under the guise of a united Germany. These are the very foundations of propaganda. Riefenstahl's denied connections to abetting the communication of such propaganda seems foolish when contrasted with the product that exists. Quote, "...arguments that appeal to something an audience perceives to be true or real may permit the propagandist to gain its trust," describes Alan Sennett, quote, "...yet the appeal to truth in propaganda is not an end in itself, but rather a means to an end. It appears to validate the claim of the propagandist to be revealing of life as it actually is," unquote. What is real does not matter as much as what is believed to be real. Connecting the two allows a dictation of reality to become reality, and appealing to the audience's emotions and need for comfort, salvation, and solidarity becomes an effective medium through which to unify a previously shattered nation. After all, if, if the only alternative is to return to the days of a broken country with no identity, how could a single collective identity with a prominently displayed symbol and a voice of its identity not be persuasive? Editing is also a choice that inescapably creates subjectivity, and Triumph is no exception. To show one thing and not another is a subjective choice made by the creator of the film, and the two hours of film for Triumph were cut down from a great deal more than that, which demonstrates the fact that specific choices were made to communicate a narrative. To take hours upon hours of film and condense it into a consumable package with a driving story and intent prominently featured, it need not be truly objective, but only have the appearance of being So, or as Alan Sennett further explains, quote, "...documentaries cannot be deemed to portray reality simply because the camera becomes the spectator. The viewer's gaze is directed at whatever the filmmaker desires him or her to see. While the subject matter is real enough, the image is a construction and perhaps distortion of reality," unquote. It doesn't have to be real. It only has to feel real to the viewer. Nothing else matters at that point." To summarize, Lenny Riefenstahl claimed objectivity in the name of only filming a documentary as the reason she did not have any political message behind her film. Triumph of the Will. So, help me. behind her film, Triumph of the Will. However, the evidence in the film suggests selective editing, editing, carefully planned camera shots, the implementation of the mass ornament, and the specific positioning of Hitler in relation to the masses and soldiers. Therefore, it can be reasonably concluded that Riefenstahl's film had a deliberate, intentional message to go along with the illusion of reality it created of Hitler's Germany. Any other claims to objectivity become extremely difficult to measure when weighted against the overwhelming evidence, film theory, history, and the sequel. Of events that transpired over those days in Nuremberg and the effect the film had on its citizens is equally undeniable. And the second one is called Context. It is not possible for art or culture to exist in a vacuum. In other words, nothing can be created that isn't in relation, positively or negatively, to the culture in which the artist exists in that particular place and time. In the case of Nazi Germany, however, does that, re- does, does that necessarily mean that any piece of art created in Germany between 1933 and 1945 is necessarily Nazi art? Can moral absolutes be drawn in such a way that eliminates the consideration of the stigma of created by a Nazi to it? How does one evaluate art, even subversive art, that exists within a time or country so infamous that the mere mention of it is often used in a hyperbolic way as a comparison to the worst thing that ever happened to humanity, unless you've been in the last couple of years and are a big fan of Charlottesville. On the surface, it doesn't seem outlandish to categorize German art from 1933 to 1945 as Nazi art. That's the easy, broad brush version of the story and often includes self-righteousness and a blanket sweep of any consideration for the context, once again, before the last couple years. Viewed with historical revisionism lenses, Nazi Germany is often filled with cartoon villains, Schindler's List, for example, shows every Nazi dressed in dark colors behaving in such erratic manners as to make Daffy Duck seem subtle and has no humanity to them whatsoever. Understanding the source, though, it it would be hard to create the quote-unquote fair version of a movie about the Holocaust. Does that same revisionism apply to the art created at the time and in the country? Is an artist a Nazi because they lived in Germany during that time? This essay will argue to the contrary. While art, cinema, photography, music, and other such media are products of a culture. Culture, generation, time, and influence, categorizing anything created in a certain place and time outside of its context is unfair and dismissive of the artists and the work they created during that time. And with the presence of subversive art, even in the most subtle of ways, is one of the most powerful ways to communicate resistance without risking one's own life in the process. While the first essay was written in reference to, Lenny to a Lenny Riefenstahl film, Triumph of the Will, this one will also be in reference to the filmmaker and the film Olympia, which was, in, which was a Riefenstahl film in 1938. She produced it about the 1936 Berlin Olympics. While the nature of athletic competition may have some similarities to the battlefield, the stakes are not as high as one's life. Communicated through these media, though, may show determ- demonstrated preference, political thought within aesthetic, and the glorification of a fascist dictator. However, is it fair to say that a film of German however is that a film of Germany about the Olympics is responsible for Auschwitz and cannot and be and cannot in any way be viewed otherwise, as Peter Adam claims. That's hardly fair. Goebbels' love of a German Expressionism, at least at one point, does not in and of itself condemn German Expressionism as a whole and make it Nazi art. There is no doubt that Lenny Riefenstahl was influenced, funded, and given a platform by the Nazis and Adolf Hitler. The Nazi influence, perspective, and level of superiority was presented in Olympia in such a way that calling it unbiased would be to live in denial of reality. But is it responsible for Auschwitz? Do these two things have a direct connection to each other that must cast its shadow upon everything, including a film about the Olympic Games? That is far from the case. Art exists in a culture and a context, but artists are not drones, despite the Nazi efforts to censor and influence the production of them as much as possible. In comparison to another artist of the time, Arnold Brecker, Jonathan Petropolis writes of the co-opting of his work by Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, quote, Brecker became increasingly aware of the way in which the regime politicized his sculptures and utilized them for propagandic purposes, quote, unquote. While the influence of the Nazis may have caused his work to change over time, or sell out as some may say, does that invalidate all his work that was done under the Nazi leadership, or just the art completed after the funding of it from the Nazis? And even if it was funded by the Nazis, that, that invalidated his art. Unless it explicitly calls for the eradication of Jews, it's hard to connect the two with only one degree of separation. Olympia falls in a similar line. While Riefenstahl herself denies being influenced on this film, as she often did for many things, her project, her projects were given a substantial budget from the Nazi Party. Olympia, as a film in and of itself, captures early film at the athletic competition in a way that so obviously influenced modern sports cinematography and videography that its place in the history of cinema and art cannot be denied similarly as to how triumph of the will was an aesthetically astounding and visually stunning film despite its content olympia gave the audience shots of jesse owens competing at the olympic games that could easily be mistaken for SportsCenter or espn were they not in black and white petropolis uh, goes on to compare how both brecker and riefenstahl deny their connections and influence from the nazis quote Like Vennie Riefenstahl, Brecker never admitted that he contributed to the artistic embodiment of the National Socialist ideology, Petropolis explains, quote. Moreover, he would not express guilt or remorse about his luxurious lifestyle, his treatment of workers at the Arno Brecker works, or any other acts in his problematic personal history, unquote. Even if that's the case, to concede a point, it does not connect his art immediately to those who suffered at Auschwitz and other concentration camps. It does indemnify the artist a bit, as the money was that was generated to fund his luxurious lifestyle was made off the backs of slave labor and the government of the genocidal final solution. That's granted, but the work itself is not without its own merit. As art or any other form of expression, even without evaluating outside of its context. Otherwise, the work of a filmmaker like Roman Polanski may not ever be regarded at all, despite the personal notoriety of the filmmaker itself. Art can be acknowledged and praised without lending credence to the artist or those who funded it, and this courtesy can also be extended to Lenny Riefenstahl for Olympia. Olympia's influence and glamorization of the accomplishments and feats of the human body can also be well associated with an essay entitled On Pain by Ernest Junger. The aesthetic of pushing the human body to its absolute physical limits and pain as an inevitability can be seen quite clearly in the presentation of the German athletes, the cameras doing everything they can to capture the superiority of the Aryan competitors. The Führer's gaze upon them, even in defeat to the likes of Jesse Owens and others, cannot be understated. Just tying Jesse Owens at one point is cause for celebration, the likes of which is usually reserved for a gold medal victory. But framed in that way, it can be interpreted that any Aryan competitor can match the best athlete in the world from anywhere else. Riefenstahl's framing of the long jump under the gaze and attention of Hitler contributes to that narrative. Junger's words ring true with that sort of presentation. Quote, all measures of the human body are designed, for, are designed to master pain, not to avoid it, says Younger. The heroic and cultic world presents an entirely different relation to pain than does the world of sensitivity, unquote. In Olympia, the athletes train for years in order to push their bodies to the absolute limit to demonstrate their worldly superiority over their competitors. These attitudes of pain being necessary and inevitable serve, as, serve not only as honor before the Fuhrer, but are eerily comparable to those of war and death not to mention social Darwinism. Or, as Junger explains, quote, Recklessness provides the actions of the masses with with a special measure of senselessness. Since the masses know no bounds, indeed, are essentially unbounded in their behavior, they tend to pay no heed to precautionary measures, which are self-evident for every disciplined group, unquote. That survival of the fittest mentality is no doubt recorded by Lenny Briefenstahl in Olympia. In the years of the inferiority of the Jew rhetoric can be traced to mentalities of the social Darwinist movements that Junger describes. Those who can survive pain and manage it are the superiors, while those who succumb to it do not belong on the same level of respect and credence. This was a mentality combined with the belief of racial and genetic superiority that did not that did cataclysmically lead to the final solution and the eradication of Jews in such places as Auschwitz. But while the mentality and the gaze of the Fuhrer upon these activities with an approving supervisory role are problematic, it would also be ludicrous to lay six million bodies at the feet of Riefen for filming the olympics bias and funding arguments regardless it would also stand to reason that while art existed in nazi germany did not exist in a vacuum it also did not exist without influence however that influence may be carried out as marion Deschmuck describes in regard to exiled artists and the changing cultural policies throughout the 1930s quote the nazis did not entirely discard aesthetic modernism nor did all modern art modernist artists necessarily suffer occupationally as a result of their work, describes Deschmich. Quote, just as the condemned so too, it does not reflexively suggest that artists who remained in the National Socialist Germany unreflectively supported or complied with the anti-modernist Nazi aesthetic policies, unquote. To put it another way, the appearance of compliance does not equal to the affirmation of all Nazi policies or even necessarily render knowledge of the Holocaust and the solutions taking place. Uh, supposing that it did give them the knowledge of the atrocities taking place, can they blame? Can the blame for Auschwitz be, blame, be placed in the same neatly tidied box as those who gave the orders and carried them through? Is artificial compliance and the subtle resistance the same thing as rolling over and giving oneself over to the Orwellian thought police? Of course not. That would be a fallacy of artistic as well as logistical proportions. Anything in regard to the history of Nazi Germany will never cease to be a sensitive subject, unless you're a big fan in the last couple years. The aforementioned broad brush is a difficult one not to use, especially with the bodies of 6 million people in the wake of the events that transpired as a result of the policies of that brush. However, in the modern day, when Roland Emmerich blew up American icons at Independence Day, uh, was the blame for the destruction of the World Trade Center laid upon his feet? It can be argued that the visuals were similar and existed within the same context of the time that those events took place, but a piece of art and the actions of people in reality are not always on such a cause-effect tightrope that one can explain the other so simply. The same is true for Lenny Riefenstahl in Olympia. Nazi art... Itself, as it turns out, is a revisionist term. Pamela M. Potter describes this subversion, quote, In a recent study on art in the Third Reich, historian Joan Kleinfelter asserted that the term Nazi art was rarely used during the Hitler years. Rather, artists, critics, and scholars strove to identify and privilege German art, unquote. Put another way, even those living in Nazi Germany didn't consider it Nazi art at the time, much the same way that film noir is a genre created in hindsight. So is that description of calling art Nazi. Lenny Riefenstahl's work was problematic. It was definitely influenced, appreciated, and funded by Hitler and the Nazis. And Olympia definitely sought the glorification of Hitler, Germany, and the Aryan race by the means of of athletic superiority however it is responsible to categorize olympia and many other pieces of art from nazi germany at the time as strictly art that can only be viewed through the lens of auschwitz this does not lend credence to apologetics or somehow suggest that the events took place were exaggerated or excused as they are not this can however assert that art even under the iron thumb of fascism and censorship can flourish be subversive, and make a statement of resistance from under the giant press. Resistance through art is not always an outright spray-painted V over the mantra or committing thought crimes against Big Brother. Sometimes it's as simple as slipping in a subliminal message in a piece of music or refusing to follow a certain guideline of aesthetic, but doing so in such a way that it passes through the closest searching of censors. Even under the most arrest and frightful situations, resistance lives, and it is the art of the oppressed lives within it, and it is not synonymous with complicity, necessarily. Riefenstahl's complicity does not make her synonymous with the acts of those who carried out the atrocities that took place in Auschwitz and Nazi Germany, any more than the music of Wagner specifically caused the Blitzkrieg. While those carrying out the actions may have appreciated or even possibly been influenced by these artists, the art itself does not pull triggers or pass laws. People do. Artists are hardly responsible for the passage of laws and policies enacted by Nazi Germany, and following along with them as best as possible as a means of survival is also not the equivalent to an endorsement of the final solution. Some artists themselves were more guilty than others for complicity and cooperation, but that does not condemn nor cast aside the art that was created in any capacity, as one would find it trouble finding a person who does not know the notes of Flight of the Valkyrie or O Fortuna, both which both of which are linked to Nazi Germany in some capacity. The actions of a culture change over time. Art can be timeless, both in, a pos- both in positive a and negative ways. But all the same, it can exist on its own without the coalition of history surrounding it or the influence it may have inspired. Now, I just want to say I wrote these nearly three years ago, and I think I may have changed uh, some of my opinions on the second one. Uh, mostly, I was reading it as it was written in 2016. Uh, but... The influence can't be denied, but we also cannot um, put down the idea of resistance from within. Um, you know, art that is subversive and protest. Uh, you know, otherwise, everything that comes out between twenty sixteen and twenty twenty will be associated with Trump, even though uh, it obviously is not all endorsed by the Trump administration. Um, like I said, I've moved a lot on that second part, but it was still something I researched and put a lot into. So I apologize if it offended anybody, but I wanted to do some reading of uh, something that I put a lot of time into. And before we get back to our normal schedule, at least give you some content uh, that I've created. So that's going to wrap it up for now. Uh, Bethany and I should be back next week and we look forward to it. And thanks for your patience. Well, I've been dealing with this. I haven't had a day off in three weeks. I had one day off in three weeks, excuse me. So I'm kind of catching up on energy and trying my best to not completely lose my mind.